This morning, uh, as we did last week, if you were here, uh, we turn to another of the, the Psalms. Uh, psalms which are uh, described often as um, songs of praise. It is um, part of the poetic literature of the, uh, of the Old Testament. In fact, if you, if you were to, to walk into the classroom right down the hall, 109, it's the, the next classroom after the choir room. So it's the second door on your left if you're going that way. You'd see that um, this week some of the, the folks in the church had been decorating that classroom. They're going through the, the kids' rooms and they're doing some remodeling, if you will, and, um, and some wonderful decorations. And they've turned it into what they're calling it is God's Lab. And it's got kind of a theme, and there is on the wall, the whole reason I'm talking about this is on the wall, it's like a periodic table of the elements. You remember that from chemistry? Any of you like just shake with fear when you remember those, those days? The periodic table, but it's all the books of the Bible. And, uh, and, and they're categorized, and if you were to find the Psalms, you see that underneath that it says poetic. It's part of the poetic literature of the Old Testament. It's also called the wisdom literature. And often, um, it's, it's meant to be expressed in, in acts of worship and praise. And we're going to talk about that in a few moments. But I want to pick up. Actually, I, I said we're going to start at verse 10. But I want to back up just to verse 8 and start there and read through the rest of the psalm. This is the psalm I read from this morning earlier. I read the first half of the psalm this morning um, for prayer. I want to need to read the rest of it now. Hear these words, brothers and sisters. Hear me, my people, and I will warn you. If you would only listen to me, Israel, you shall have no foreign god among you. You shall not worship any other god than me. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Open wide your mouth and I will fill it. But my people would not listen to me. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own devices. If my people would only listen to me, if Israel would only follow my ways, how quickly I would subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe before him, and their punishment would last forever. But you would be fed with the finest of wheat, with honey from the rock. I would satisfy you. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, satisfy our spirits, our souls, speak to our hearts, your words, from your scripture, from, from my lips, that they would be pleasing to you, gracious Lord. We pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. So again, psalms, songs of praise, songs of worship, songs of of, of adoration, if you will, but, but these are words that are meant to be expressive of within, expressed within the worship life of the community of faith. We turn to Psalm 81, and as I started to study it, I did something that I don't usually, I'm guilty, I should say, of not always paying enough attention to. And that is, if you have your Bibles open, you probably will notice under Psalm 81, there's italicized small print words. They're instructions, if you will. There's a little bit about the psalm, and they're, they're instructions to the people. And in my version of the Bible, it says, For the director of music 
according to Gittith of Asaph. Anybody have anybody say anything different under theirs? They want to share? What's yours say, Jan? Okay. On an instrument of God. A psalm of Asaph, an instrument of God. That's, that's very significant. See, I, I learned things that I had never paid attention to. Asaph, let's start with, with Asaph. Asaph is the writer of the psalm. Now, if you are like me, you probably have never heard of Asaph. Anybody in here ever heard of Asaph? Okay, good. That makes me feel better. Thank you. Asaph wrote 12 of our psalms. He is one of the three that were commissioned by David to lead the people in song in their worship of Yahweh. He was, for lack of a better term, Kimla. That's a compliment, just so you know. Um, He was a a worship leader, but, but, but not just for a community, a congregation within many congregations, as we are, but, but for the entire community of faith, the entire nation, if you will. He was one of those commissioned to be a song leader, to be a musician. In fact, if you go and read Ezra chapter 2, verse 41, much, much later, when it's talking about those who are returning um, from, from bondage, it says, part of that, it says, the musicians those who returned, the musicians, the descendants of Asaph. So so he was a a song leader. He is a song writer, hence the Psalms. And he is creating a psalm of praise and worship to be expressed within the community through praise and worship, through through music, if you will. And and it mentions here the, the Gittith, which was an instrument from Gath. Now, Gath may or may not be familiar to you, but if you remember one of the most famous and familiar stories of the Old Testament, David and Goliath, you may remember that Goliath was from Gath. When David was hiding from King Saul, when he was fearing for his life and he was running and hiding, he hid in Gath. So at some point along the way, this instrument gets introduced, and it is used in worship. It is a stringed instrument, the gittith. In the Greek, the word is kitara. Exactly, guitar. It's the word that would become Latin, that would become Spanish, that would influence the English word guitar. And this is a song of praise. So so here you go. This, This is... This is kind of, and I'm not speaking to any of you specifically, but, but years ago, some of you remember kind of what we, we affectionately call in, in the church the worship wars, when there was a lot of arguing over what's the proper instrument for worship, piano, organ, guitar, and people thought we should stay with the organ or the, the piano because those are the traditional instruments of worship. Nope, <laughs> not really. I mean, th- worship is, is expressive of so many different things. There's not an instrument of worship. And, and here we see that this, this song is written by Asaph to be performed on the kitara 
for the people to sing in worship. And it sounds like a wonderful song of praise. It sounds like something that would have been written out of a wonderful time in the life of, of the, the, the community of faith, the Israelites. But what is so fascinating is it's exactly the opposite. Asaph writes this, as many songwriters do, out of his own experience. One of the things that we know with a lot of songwriters, and maybe you're a songwriter or a poet, uh, and, and very often some of the, the most powerful music and po most powerful poetry arises out of the experiences of, of the writer, of the man or the woman who puts the words to paper. <coughs> Asaph writes this, this call to his people to worship and to strike, you know, to sound the music and to lift their voices to God. And it sounds like it would come from a wonderful place, but it, it doesn't. It comes from a place of terrible, terrible turmoil. It comes from a place where Asaph in his very old age is probably doing his very best to cling to his own faith because he has seen so many hopes and dreams dashed. He has seen society fall apart all around him. See, Asaph was commissioned by David to be one of the worship leaders. But he had lived a long time. And he had seen the next king come along, the heir of David, the son of David, and that would be Solomon. And Solomon's kingship was greeted by the people with so much hope, so much excitement, so much promise. This would be the king that would, as, as David had been promised, would bring pre peace and prosperity to the, to the nation. And for a long time he did. For a long time, you know, remember his, his asking of God for the gift of wisdom. And God not only granted his wisdom, but, but prosperity. And he would build the temple. And things were great until Solomon began to turn from the Lord. As is often the case, and we see the story over and over again in the Scriptures, Solomon took on many wives, many wives who had foreign gods, and he began to adopt and incorporate the ways of the foreign gods. And he turned away from Yahweh. And he became oppressive to his people. And after Solomon died, his son took over, and the kingdom of Israel split. And this is the situation in which Asaph writes. The people have started to follow foreign gods. The kingdom of Israel has split into two kingdoms, the north and the south. Judah in the south, Israel in the north, separate kings, divisive. Society is crumbling, if you will, around them. And Asaph is seeing that, and his heart is breaking. And he is desperate to see the people return to God. And so he writes this psalm that sounds so joyful and sounds so promising and so uplifting. And he writes it at a time when he is not reflecting what he sees. He is projecting what he knows God wants. Because, like the final verse says, they're in a place where the it's full of rocks. You know, the, the title of the sermon is Honey from the Rock, from the very last verse. But let's focus for a moment. There's a lot of rocks. The land is dry. The terrain is desolate because the people have turned away. And so the beginning of the psalm, he reminds them, is one of the patterns of the scriptures. He reminds them what God has done for them because he desperately wants them to come back to faith. 
He wants them to know that God has given them a promise that even in the midst of this there is a hope and that even out of the rocky places of life, even out of the worst situations of life, even out of the most difficult situations of life, that God's promises still hold true, that God desires more and better for his people. And that's the hope that he wants them to return to. But the circumstances are far from that reality. And so I started to, to wrestle with that imagery, that imagery of rock, that imagery of desert, of, of, of terrain. And it, it's, it's an interesting reality if, if you ever have a chance or if you have been um, to Israel. And if you ever have a chance to go, maybe not now, but, you know, prayerfully that those opportunities will present itself down the road. But, but if you have a chance to go, I hope you do. But, it, but it's fascinating because it is described, you know, in our Old Testament imagery as, the, as a land flowing with milk and honey. And you have these wonderful images of just the beautiful land of Israel. And there are some beautiful places, no doubt. But it's a lot of desert. You know, we had a joke when I, when I was in college when I went with some friends. And we'd say, hey, look out the window. Look, there's rocks and dirt. Because that's what you see, a lot of rocks and dirt. And it's interesting that God chose this as a land where his people would flourish. And I think there's some powerful imagery there because God reminds us that out of rocks and dirt and desolate places and dry places and difficult places, he births beautiful things. And he brings wonderful blessings. And so I started to play with that imagery because, look, all of us know what it's like, and maybe you know right now in your life what it's like to be experiencing very dry and desolate and rocky places. We know what it's like to have those experiences. And I started to think about those kind of things that very often happen to us, that we have to persevere through, as Paul would say. And very often, our minds go to the places and the experiences that are not our doing, the circumstances that are not our fault, that, that life thrusts upon us. And there's no doubt that there's a lot of times that we go through those kind of things and experiences those kinds of realities, and it is not a punishment from God, and it is not because you have done anything wrong. It's because life is sometimes hard, and life's not always fair, and it's not perfect on this side of heaven. And sometimes we walk in those places that are really difficult, and we have just kind of, it's just the way that life has gone, and, and it's not indicative of anything any of us have done. And that is true, and we tend to go to those places because they're more comforting for us. And I started to go there. I started to craft a sermon that talked about the things that, that God brings us through that are not of our doing. But the problem is there's a verse in this text that I couldn't get away from. There's a verse in this text that kept reminding me, I don't think I'm being very faithful to what God is saying to his people. And this is the verse that I could not get away from. Verse 11 and 12. But my people would not listen to me. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own devices. How many of you know that sometimes the worst thing that God can do for you is to allow you to have exactly what you want? The worst thing that can happen in your life or in my life is for God to allow us to have exactly what we want. See, this is not a psalm that's written among a people that are, that are suffering because they have become the victim of circumstance. 
This is written to a people that are going through a tough and difficult and terrible time in the history of their country and in, the, in their own lives because of the choices they have made. And that's where it starts to get a little bit uncomfortable. That's where it starts to get a little bit difficult. It is much more comforting for us to talk about the things that we go through that are not our fault. Whew. But how many times do we find ourselves in rocky places, tough places, challenging places, painful places, because of the decisions and choices we have made? I have had a lot of conversations lately with people who are in really tough places in their life and painful places. And it's because of the choices they've made. Now, this isn't, I'm, I'm not heaping judgment upon them because I have been in tough places and painful places and difficult places because of the choices I have made. This is not a judgmental, you're getting what you deserve. But this is an honest reality of saying that sometimes we have to own the ramifications of our choices. We have to own the consequences of our choices. Do we not raise our children to, to own responsibility and to, to say to our kids, when you make bad choices, you sometimes reap the consequences of bad choices? Well, that lesson doesn't cease to be real when we turn 18. We continue sometimes, well, we continue always to live in a reality where we reap consequences of our decisions. But too often, we want to deny that. Too often, we want to cast it aside and act like we're just victims. It's not our fault. It's nothing that we could have done. Well, that's just not true. Sometimes it is. And sometimes it's exactly because of the decisions that we have made, even when we'd like to think it isn't. Kirby John Caldwell is a pastor in Texas, United Methodist pastor at Windsor Village, one of our largest United Methodist churches. And he preached a sermon years ago. And he talked about this kind of thing. It was a different context. But he, ta he was talking to, to parents. He was talking to divorced parents and saying that even though you are divorced, if you have children, you have a responsibility to your children to do your best to get along for your kids. And this was in the context of a larger message. And he, he was talking about this, and he said, but you don't understand how many times people have come to me, one of the parents will come to me and will say, great, I understand what you're saying, but you don't understand that other parent, my ex-husband, my ex-wife, they're crazy. They're just flat out crazy. It's not my fault because they're nuts. And he used this as an example. He said, I'll look at them and I'll say, okay, well, then there are two truths in that statement. Either one, they were crazy before you married them. And you did not use your God-given gift of discernment. And if they were not crazy before you married them, then guess what? They became crazy while they were married to you. <laughs> Don't tap your husbands or spouses. I saw that. Either way, you bear some of the responsibility. This is my point, and I only use that as a larger example I don't mean that specifically for parents who have gotten divorced. For all of us, there's a lot of times where it's really easy for us to say, it's not my fault. I didn't have any responsibility in that. Sometimes that's just too easy. God says to the people, the mess you are in is because I let you have your way. 
let you get what you wanted. And how has that worked out for you? Now, if we accept a God who is a perfect heavenly father or heavenly mother who loves us unconditionally, would we not accept that God's desire for our lives, God's ordinances and laws for our lives is because that when we live according to his plan and his purpose and his will, our lives are so much better, are so much blessed. If we accept that to be true, then the opposite is true. When we violate God's will, when we violate God's law, when we violate God's commands for our lives, then does it not stand to reason that our lives are far less than they could be? That's what's happened to the Israelites. That's what happens to many of us. Yes, sometimes stuff happens and we have to fight through circumstances that are not our making. But let's own some of our mess. Let's own some of the choices we've made and the challenges we face because of those choices. Because here is the promise. You know, if, if that was just it, just calling us out for our bad choices, that'd be awful depressing. See, but God never leaves it there. He doesn't leave there because into the midst of their mess, God speaks his promise. And this is his promise. Part, part of verse 13 and part of verse 16. If my people would only listen to me, if Israel would only follow my ways, you would be fed with the finest of wheat. With honey from the rock, I would satisfy you. From your rocky places, from your messes, from your difficulty, from your challenges, I have a promise and I have a blessing that God is desperate to give to us. God wants to say, your difficulties are not the end of the story. Even out of that, I can bring this sweet, fine delicacy that I long to give to you. Honeybees, wild honeybees that would build their hives in the crevices, in the deserts, in the crevices of the rocks. So even in a desolate-looking place, this sweet blessing can come forth. That's what God says. He says, if you would listen to me. And see, listen, shama is the Hebrew word. It means to hear intelligently. And it's not just to hear the words, but it is to respond with trust and obedience. Because let's face it, a lot of us hear, I mean, we hear God all the time. There's, some, there's times in our seasons where we struggle and we think, I just don't hear God. I don't hear God speaking. I'm not in tune. I'm not hearing from the Lord. That does happen. But I'll tell you what happens more often. More often than not, we do hear from God. We hear from God through His Word. We hear from God in worship. We hear from God from the advice and the counsel of wise, faithful God-fearing friends. We hear from God. We just don't want to be obedient. We just don't want to respond. It is no different. I've, I've sat over and over with people as a pastor who have sat and they have acknowledged the areas of their life that are, that are causing them problems, their addiction and their behaviors and their, their choices that are destroying their lives. They hear from me or they hear from others what the problem is and where the mess is coming from. But here's the problem. They don't want to do anything about it. They don't want to change. Sometimes that's really, really hard. In the face of addictions, I know that is not easy to do. But I've sat with many who simply just didn't want to. We hear from God. We just don't always want to respond obediently. The people of Israel, they knew what God's word was. It wasn't like it was foreign to them. 
just didn't want to respond. But God says to them, and God says to us, I desire to give you something so much greater, even in the midst of the rocky places, if you will just respond with obedience, if you will just listen. Shama, hear and respond. Hear and follow. Hear and be obedient. God is a God who works to bring honey from the most unlikely places in our lives. The scriptures are full of the stories of men and women who have heard and responded to God's faithfulness and who have received honey from the rock. Full of stories of of men like David who was anointed to be king was told the kingdom will be yours and the next thing that happens, he slays a giant and the world celebrates him. And turn a few pages and the next thing you know, he's hiding in caves and running for his life. Wondering, God, this can't be what you had in mind. But yet he held on to his faith. And in time, God would turn that mess into a blessing. Honey from the rock. Joseph in the Old Testament, whose brother sold him into slavery, was a cocky young kid. Every time he responded in faithfulness, it seemed to backfire against him. And he ended up in prison. And he ended up accused of of sexual assault. And he ended up with all these charges. And it looked like his life was over. And he had every reason to wonder, God, where are you in the midst of this? And God says, hold on. And he does. And from that he would receive honey from the rock as he would become the second most powerful man in Israel. We could go over and over throughout the Scriptures, Old and New Testament, of men and women who have held on to faith in the midst of their rocky places, sometimes their own doing. Paul was a persecutor of the church. Paul chose to persecute Christians. Paul chose to campaign against the followers of Jesus. But when God got a hold of him and Paul chose to respond in obedience, his life became not only for him, but for many, sweet honey from the rock. That's the promise that God gives to us if we will listen, if we will hear. Jesus is our rock. Jesus is our Savior. Jesus is the one who was crucified, dead, and buried doesn't get much more rockier than that. But on that third day, a stone rolled away. And if you'll allow me to play with the metaphor just a little bit, honey came forth. Something sweet and wonderful. God works that way still today. It's still the promise he gives us. Sometimes we have to own our responsibilities. Sometimes we have to own our choices. Remember, God doesn't leave us there. God promises something greater if we'll hold on. Wherever you are today, I pray you've got a firm hand of God who promises in your life and mine that even from the rocky places, honey can come forth. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, that we would have that kind of faith to trust in you and, and to, to be open and honest with the choices that we've made and and even some of our unfaithfulness. But not because you seek to judge us, but because you seek to cover us with your grace, redeem us and 
birth out of even those places something far greater than we could imagine. Our hearts are yours, Lord. Speak to us now through the power of Christ our Lord. Amen.